As I mentioned this morning during our announcements, it's now time for us to wrap up our reflections on the Christmas season and our extended um, reflection on the Incarnation. Now, we'll think about the Incarnation a lot all year long, but I mean, quite obviously. But the special time that we've had, uh, we've been focusing on a few, a few key, key themes as we've moved from Advent into Christmas with all of our readings and the, the texts that we've considered during, during these sermons over the last several weeks. Very clearly, we've contemplated and considered uh, the waiting for the Savior's arrival, this great longing and expectations. Uh, we've considered the celebration, and we have celebrated the arrival of, of the Son of God, and we have hopefully spent good, good amounts of time reflecting on what His coming means for the world and what His meaning, or I'm sorry, and what His coming means in particular for us. And this last story that we're going to consider, this story from Luke chapter 2, uh, of Jesus being dedicated at the temple and then the introduction of, of Simon and Anna, in this story we do see like a snapshot of all the considerations that we've had over the last several weeks. We see all those, all those details wrapped up into one particular um, story. This is the last story of, of the baby Jesus from Luke's gospel. And um, hopefully it's one that, that is familiar to many of us. And if it's not, and, and, or even if it is familiar, hopefully as we examine it and look at it, we can, we can bring out some of the details and get a sense of, of what is really happening here and, and find our place in this story um, and as, we, as they receive Christ here in the temple, may we too receive him uh, with similar hearts and attitudes. Well, I'm not going to waste much more time and just dive into it right away because there's a lot of material to cover. So we're going to cover this under three points. Uh, the first of which is point number one, redeemed under the law. Point number one, redeemed under the law. The story begins once again in verse 22 in this way. It says that when the time had come for purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So we have here at the very beginning of the story, uh, both Mary and Joseph now uh, living as, as good, faithful Israelites in the land. They are following the customs and the requirements of of the laws we see right there at the at the outset um, that they are coming into Jerusalem from their hometown. They have made yet another journey after some of the other journeys they've made, other pilgrimages they've made to, to come to the temple for a for some very specific reasons that the text um, lays out for us. Now, the custom of the of the law would have required Jesus to be circumcised on the eighth day, which it previously says that he was. And then he was then formally given that name, Jesus, which the angel uh, had, had revealed to Mary. And after that, after about 40 days, of, of 40 days from the birth, they are now fulfilling their duty to travel from the north in Nazareth, down south once again, to Jerusalem to observe a handful of temple rites. Or, or two, two, there are two um, uh, requirements that they are observing in our text at the temple in Jerusalem. It, meant, it just mentions purification at the outset, but there's one related to purification, and there's this other rite that is related to the, the presentation of Jesus at the temple as well. And it is important to get a little bit of background um, for both of, these, both of these rituals, both of these rites, because it does help illuminate what's, what's happening in the story. 
The first rite that's taken place is this rite of purification, and that is, that is for the sake of Mary. In the law, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 12 in particular, there are certain laws described for um, what should happen after, after having a child, after childbirth. And in, in Leviticus 12, it's, it's the case that 40 days after, after birth, in particular um, the birth of a son, that the parents, for the, sake of the, for the sake of the mother, are supposed to go to the temple and they are supposed to present two types of sacrifices there to the priest for him to, to sacrifice at the altar. They're to bring, it says in the law, a one-year-old lamb. So they're supposed to bring a lamb. Uh, and that's supposed to be for a burnt offering. And then they are to present a turtle dove or a pigeon for, for a sin offering. So the, so the priest is supposed to take those animals, slaughter them, sacrifice, you know, sacrifice them, uh, throw one upon, the, upon the, um, the, the altar for burning, and do, and do his duty so that, once again, Mary or the mother... Um, can become ceremonially clean once again after, after the birth of her firstborn son. This is a pretty standard practice that all, that all Jews would have been required to do um, at, this, at this time. And Joseph and Mary are faithful to follow through, to take the journey about three days from Nazareth to Jerusalem to do this. But since it, and this, this would be the case for any childbirth, um, you know, the, whether it's your first or your last it doesn't matter that the um, that is required by law for for the mother to always do this, but there's also a second ritual that's taking place here when they go to Jerusalem as well, and that's the presentation of Jesus to the Lord. Um, now, this is not some tradition; it's not just a baby dedication; it's not uh, it's not without its its purpose. But this is another thing required by the law. See, in the law of in the law of God. There is this principle of the, fr- of the first fruit, something that we should be very familiar with. When we think about, um, about all of the, the rules regarding the first fruits of the harvest, right? So the first, the first bit of the harvest, they dedicate to the Lord. Or that's the same reason why we also tithe the way that we do. We, you know, we tithe the first fruits. Uh, we give, we give uh, a 10% or, or whatever, whatever it's supposed to be. Well, this idea of the first fruits, the... Um, the best and the first belonging to the Lord, that also extended in the law to um, not just to like to produce and to the and to the harvest, but also to all that was born from the womb of the flesh. We're told also in in Leviticus, it says that everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, shall be the Lord's. So, so there's also this idea in the law that the firstborn. Um, that, that the firstborn is always to be dedicated to the Lord. Like the firstborn, um, the one that paves the way through the womb, that that, that that one belongs to the Lord. Now, I think that's very clear for us, and we, and we sort of understand that when it comes to animal sacrifices, that for the clean animals, right, the kosher animals, so thinking like bulls, rams, and goats, well, they are to be dedicated to the Lord through sacrifice. They're taken to the temple and then offered up, as a, as a sacrifice to God. But it wasn't just the case for the clean animals, um, but also unclean animals. There's this, there's this condition or there's this provision in the law that allows us to, or that allowed the people to, to, to demonstrate that even for unclean animals that were kept and not eaten, that they belong to the Lord as well. 
And not just animals, not just beasts, but also, also human children. That there is this, there's this notion that the firstborn sons in particular belong to the Lord. That idea that has its roots all the way back in the Exodus and the plagues of Moses, that the firstborn son belongs to the Lord. Well, that's also codified in the law of Moses. And the, uh, and the faithful Israelite is commanded to do something to acknowledge that reality. And that is what it's being described here in terms of this presentation of Jesus to the Lord. And the idea is this, that all Israelites are to bring their firstborn sons to the temple and symbolically buy them back, uh, redeem them from the Lord who owns them uh, through, this, through this right. So the Lord owns them. Uh, the, the Lord, uh, they belong to the Lord, and you had to go to the temple and then, and then present typically money or um, typically money to purchase your son, your firstborn son, back from the Lord to whom he belonged. And so that's what Mary and Joseph are doing here. This is the second of those rites, that because Jesus is their firstborn, they have to go to Jerusalem uh, by law, and they have to present him at the temple and then buy him back from the God um, who owns him. That's what they're doing. They're honoring and acknowledging the Lord's ownership of Jesus and over the entire family just by being faithful enough uh, to do all that is required of them by law. And really, when we see, we see in this story, like the last story of their, of their life together, uh, we see this young Israelite family being faithful, right? doing what is required of them in the scriptures, like following the letter of the law all the way, um, all the way to, to, this, to this principle. And this, and this is indeed a great example for us to follow, right? to recognize that all that we have and all that we are uh, belongs to the Lord, that his ownership over us reaches every part of our lives. It even reaches down into those, those very things that we possess, um, it reaches into our resources. This is the, the same principle, once again, um, that we use for why we tithe. It's how we understand our children as well. That our children belong to the Lord first and foremost. And that we are given charge of them just for a time as, as stewards. That they've been entrusted to us by the one who truly does um, own them. Mary and Joseph are dutiful. And they're dutiful even even though their circumstances might be difficult for them to follow through with what's required here. You'll notice in the passage that in verse 24, Mary doesn't, for her purification, she doesn't offer a lamb and a turtle dove, but she offers those two turtle doves. Um, now the reason for that is because one of the provisions in the law, it says that if you can't afford a lamb, if you don't have the means, if you're poor and don't have a lamb, then, then there's an exception because you have to be clean, is that you can offer two turtle doves in place of a lamb and a turtle dove. And this shows for us that the estate that, that we found Mary in in the beginning, and Mary and Joseph from not having a place at the inn, that that continued in their life, that these people were not wealthy, that they remained in a lowly estate. They were humble and poor, even at this point in their lives. But that poverty didn't hinder them from taking that three-day journey from, from Nazareth to Jerusalem to perform these rites. 
And just one last little note on this before we move on. It is important for us to note that, that Joseph and Mary, that their devotion, like, like their willingness to follow through with all that's required of them, that that's, that that's only part of the significance of this, of this moment. More important to us is that um, the Bible bears witness to the fact that Christ, even in his infancy, and even when it seemed as though he wasn't in control himself personally uh, as an individual, that from his birth on, he was always fulfilling everything required of him in the law. That God, through his providence, really did, um, really did uh, bring about all the circumstances in Christ's life where he can, where he can or, or sorry, where, where he could come and, and declare that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and he truly did. As Galatians says, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born uh, of a woman, born under the law, that that was true even in these very small, fine details, uh, that this episode is just one, one example, and, and, and it's paradigmatic for all the ways in which Christ lived under the law um, and followed and fulfilled everything that was required under, under that very law. So, once again, we have this idea where Mary and Joseph come to the temple. Mary has to be purified. They have to present Jesus to the Lord for the purpose of redeeming him or buying him back from God um, and then receiving him back to them. Um, And that idea of redeeming Jesus and receiving is what the entire rest of the story is all about. Because the second thing that we'll see in this, in the story, is point number two. Uh, that Christ uh, uh, is a point number two. Christ received by the waiting, received by the waiting. Right. So Mary and Joseph they go to the temple, perform these rites. Christ is redeemed. He's received back. But then the story takes a bit of an odd turn, because he's because in the story uh, narratively, he's not received by his parents necessarily. That there are two other figures that enter into the story that, that in a way receive the Christ back from the Lord once the Lord gives him back um, upon his redemption. Because in God's providence and, in the prom- and by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, there are these two elder Israelites at the temple at the same time. There's a man there named Simeon and there's a widow there named Anna. And it's upon this act of redeeming Christ uh, from the Lord that he is, in a sense, then at this point, given to these two elder Israelites in the story, Simeon and Anna. It's a very significant act, and we learn a lot about them and the details of who they are, what they share in common, and um, how they function in this, in this story, and how they function in this great story of the incarnation. It's very, very important. So we want to learn a few things about these people who received Christ after his redemption. Very clearly, one of the things that jumps out about these two, Simeon and Anna, is, is first that they are both, they're both very, very old. And I don't, I don't want us to o- overlook that. I mean, Simeon, quite obviously, is the one who gets the most recognition. He's the one who sings this song. We'll talk a lot about, about the details of that song and what he says. But we presume because of some of the things that are said here, that he is one who is very, very old. It's the Holy Spirit who reveals to him that, that he's not going to see death until he sees 
the Lord's Christ. And then, he, and then he sings about the idea that, well, now I can finally depart from this life in peace after receiving this child. Both you know, tend to lead most who read this to, you know, to, to figure this, this guy is very old, um, that he's there at the temple on his, or, or during his last days, and it's been revealed to him that he will be sustained, he will not see death until, until he sees the Christ. Not much is, else is known or spoken about him. He sort, of, you know, he sort of shows up in this story and then disappears, and we don't see him again uh, throughout, throughout the Gospels or the rest of the New Testament. And it, is, and it is a bit strange, but somewhat familiar scene, I guess. I mean, they're at the temple. Um, Christ, Christ is redeemed. And then this old man comes and swoops in, takes him up in his arms, and snatches the kid up, and then sings him a song. He, he's, uh, he, he's doting upon the, baby, upon the baby Jesus here in the story. Now, for us, if we were out shopping, it might panic us if some strange old man came up and took up our child. Um, but this was hopefully a bit of a safe space, a safe place, the temple uh, of of Jerusalem. Now, where we presume Simeon is old just through the context, Anna, we know for sure she is very old. Like it is explicitly stated how old this lady is. Verse 36, it says that she is advanced in years. So it tells us right out of the gate. How how old? Well, the ESV translation that we read from, it says that she's 84. But that's probably not the best reading. There's even a note in, in, in most ESVs. It has a little, a little uh, footnote there for you. Because what it, what it's, what's a better rendering, I think, in the, in the Greek, it says that you know, she, was a, she, she married young when she was a virgin. So you have to assume 12 to 14. Then she lived with her husband for seven years. And then he died. And then she was a widow for 84. So this likely puts her closer to like, she's over 100, uh, re- like realistically. That's, that's what the text is trying to communicate. I mean, she's old. Um, and she, is, she has lived a life, most of which, 84 years of that, as a widow. Now, these people are both old. That's very clear. But they're also both exemplary because they are faithful Israelites, the two of them. Simeon is introduced in this way. It calls him in verse 24, uh, righteous and devout. This is a godly man. This is an ideal um, elder statesman of the people. And Anna, in verse 36, we get all this detail. She's a prophetess. She's from the tribe of Asher. And even though she's been a widow for an extended time, that's not what's notable about her. The thing that really makes her known amongst the community is the fact that she is devout in her prayer and in her worship at the temple. It says a bit hyperbolically in verse 37 that she, did not, that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. This woman was a prayer warrior. She was devout. She was, she was a regular fixture at the temple. And these two examples, therefore, both man and woman, represent these ideal Israelites. They're representative of, of something, as we'll see. Both in this story are given a special dispensation, um, whether by the Holy Spirit directly or just God's providence generally, to be there at the temple at that time. Simeon it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him, which is a very interesting thing to say right at the beginning of the book of Luke. Um, the Holy Spirit 
revealed to Simeon he wouldn't see death until he saw the Christ, and he's under the direction of the Holy Spirit to, to go to the temple that particular day, and, he, and, and it's under the influence of the Holy Spirit that he, that he singles out the right child. I mean, imagine, I mean, you have to imagine there were other children there, there was lots of other sacrifices, other people in line, you know, to, to, you know, to, uh, to present their child or to present their offerings, and, and he happens to see, and, and, and the Holy Spirit shows him, this is the right one, this is the, uh, this is the child that he's been waiting for. Anna, too, it says that God's hand of providence was on her as she came up at that very hour to the temple for this purpose. So we have these two people, they're both, they're both older, they're both exemplary in their faith, they're both there under the guidance of, of the Lord and His Holy Spirit, but they're also both characterized by this idea of waiting. At Simeon, in addition to being a righteous man and a devout man, Simeon is first and foremost a man, we are told, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You know, he had read the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, chapter 61. He had known those scriptures intimately since he was a young man. He had been waiting, even into his old age, for the comfort of God to come. Those Advent passages that we, have, that we read to try to put ourselves back into that position to try and reflect the way they did. This man was old and he lived a life nothing of, a, of nothing but that kind of waiting and reflecting. It says that both he and Anna were waiting for the salvation of the Lord. Anna in particular waiting for the redemption of Israel. And both being old and righteous in their own right, these two are representative of Israel as a whole in that moment. That these people, just like the nation, have been long in their waiting, for the nation hundreds of years now in their waiting. Both they and the nation had truly suffered um, during their extended time of anticipation. And it's in that old age, it's through that, it's through that long waiting that these people, along with Israel, have, had come to know all their disappointments and their frustrations, the frustrations of waiting um, during, a, uh, during a fallen time, the life of disappointment, waiting for some consolation and comfort in the midst of a disappointing life, of a life that hasn't worked out the way in which you thought it would. Well, that's something we can relate to um, at least on some level. I mean, think about all the waiting, the disappointments in life that we've faced ourselves. All the ways you think about life as you get older, of ways in which things could have gone different. That job you could have, you could have landed but didn't. That opportunity you should have taken, but it didn't work out. The decision that you made that ended up being the wrong decision, the regret that we face of words that went unspoken, or the regret of words that were spoken but were never able to be made up for or apologized for. We, we think about it too, too deeply and we hold on to the regrets of our lives too tightly. Well, they can fill us up with a lot of regret and a lot of resentment, um, the bitterness and the unfairness of life. I mean, consider Anna in this story. 
been widowed for 84 years, never remarried. No groom, no inheritance for her, for her family. Um, you know, for every story we hear of like Naomi and Ruth where things work out in the end, here's a woman where it didn't work out. She remained widowed. No inheritance, no offspring, no promise in her body of any future for her house. What hope does one like this have other than a consolation of salvation and redemption that can only come from God? This is the story of Israel in their time of waiting. And it's in this text that God gives this resounding answer that, the, that these two now shall receive quite literally as he picks up the baby and holds him in his arms, Simeon does, that they shall now receive their consolation. For the Savior had come. God has given them comfort. And he's given them comfort as elderly uh, Israelites in the form of new life represented by this child. They've been held captive by the curse of Israel all of their lives, and now they receive in Christ their peace. Once again, we see in the story as Mary and Joseph come to the temple, dedicate, or not dedicate, but um, present Jesus to the Lord, and redeem him. He's given back not just to Mary and Joseph, but he's given back to these two, and in a sense, he's given back to all of captive Israel. In these two, we see how Israel was prepared long, uh, long through trials and suffering in their waiting uh, to receive God's consolation. And they do receive him, both Simeon and Anna. And when they receive him in the story, well, they do the only logical uh, thing that people who receive the salvation and the grace of God can do. They testify, they speak, they praise, they sing. So the third thing that I want us to see and final thing in this passage is point number three, the redemption of Israel and beyond. The redemption of Israel and beyond. Simeon and Anna what they're most known for in this passage and what the passage focuses on them doing uh, from this point forward is, is speaking. Right? They testify. They bear witness to the arrival of the Messiah and their reception of the Messiah. Now, Anna, we don't get much detail for what she says. We don't get the substance of what she says. Other than uh, it simply says that she gave thanks to the Lord and she spoke about Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we don't know exactly what she said, but, but we do know that she just testified to everyone who was like her waiting for their salvation. She testified that it had finally come in the person of Christ. But Simeon, very clearly, we do have his words, uh, and he has a lot to say. He seizes the baby in his arms, and he sings him this great, this great song beginning in verse 29. Lord, now, letting your servant depart in peace, um, now you are letting your, letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He says, Lord, now I can die and rest. Your word has been fulfilled. You have, you know, whatever trials and disappointments um, that he's dealt with in his, advanced, in, in his advanced age, none of those matter any longer. Because now he can say truly that he can rest 
and that he has peace. And everything that ailed, uh, ailed him in his past pales in comparison um, to, the, to receiving the Messiah. Once again, that he's literally singing and staring at as he holds him, as he embraces him. My eyes have seen your salvation, he sings, that you have prepared in the presence for all peoples. That he has seen this one, as he looks at the child, he has seen the comfort and consolation of God. He's seen his Messiah, God in human flesh. And he sent that son into the creation so that not just Simeon, but that all would see him as well. He's caught a glimpse of God himself, and he's seen him. Like Anna, Simeon also sings of the redemption of Jerusalem and glory to your people, Israel. The joyful restoration of the nation and her peoples that God, uh, God has at this time indeed sent a Savior who was going to buy them back, just as the parents had to. I mean, there, there's redemption happening on multiple levels here, right? There's, you, have, you, you have Christ presented to God, and then the parents have to, have to buy him back. And that same notion is, is, is caught up in this idea of, of God is now going to redeem Israel back. God is going to buy them back from, a, from their curse and being held captive by the world. Um, as God gives his son, the, the remarkable thing that is even hinted at here is that God is going to redeem captive Israel back. And this child, this child that Simeon is singing over, this child will become himself the price. So he will be the ransom paid, paid in his blood that's going to bring his people back to God, to whom they belong. This is the way that this child will bring salvation to Jerusalem. And seeing him, Simeon and Anna can find rest and satisfaction and peace in the midst of their otherwise bitter and hard lives. And that is even the case. What's remarkable is that this is the case not just for Israel, not just for this particular people, and not just for the city of Jerusalem. But Simeon has some, his song has some other realities that will be joy and will be amazing news for the rest of the world, but that's going to be very challenging for the rest of Israel to take hold of. It is important to recognize the full scope of Simeon's words in his song, that with the coming of the Messiah, not just, it, it doesn't just mean glory for the nation of Israel, but a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Salvation and redemption, release from captivity, of the consolation, peace and goodwill. Um, well, it's going to be both for Jew and for Gentile. And even though, as we read from Isaiah 61 and 62, even though... That Gentile inclusion is already in development there, and we should see it and anticipate it. Um, it's going to be a very challenging thing for, for many in Israel. And Simeon, once again, filled with the Holy Spirit, acknowledges this. Because he says in his song, or, or he says when addressing Mary and Joseph, that behold, this child here, this, 
this great consolation, this wonderful blessed child. He's also appointed for the rise and, and the fall of many in Israel. The many are going to be divided by the true nature of this child. And as we consider the rest of the New Testament, we, can, we consider the Jesus of the Bible, um, not the Jesus fed to us by popular culture or not, to, or not the Jesus of our own imagination. We think about the bare facts of who he is and what he did. Um, well, it is certainly a fact that this Jesus is going to, div- or, or has divided. And he has called all um, to give an account and to reckon with who he is. I mean, this is, this G- this, this child Jesus is also the one who says in Luke 14 that if anyone who comes to me and does not ha- hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is a child who brings peace, but he also brings a peace that's, that's going to divide for some and that has always been the case, and it is even, even to this day. When thinking about some of the preparations we've had for Advent and Christmas, as Dave and I have been, have been talking about songs, and he's been, he sent me over stuff, one of the things that we've continued to, to face challenges um, on, not like between us, but just challenges with, with, picking, with finding the right materials, is like, which version of the Christmas carols do we do? We do? Because the ones that are popularized, that we're most familiar with, that we have the most like resources in terms, of, in terms of sheet music and stuff, well, they're missing lots of verses. Um, it's, a, it's a historical reality that a lot of our Christmas hymns, that they were neutered, particularly through the mid-20th century uh, and particularly through, through some of the mainline denominations and, and just the popularization of Christmas music in general, um, you know, verses were changed. Verses were dropped entirely. Like we were joking last week he, uh, when we did Angels from the Realms of Glory, that that original version that we printed had seven verses in it, which is quite a bit. Um, but you'll find that in a lot of those Christmas songs, anything like explicitly, explicitly talking about Jesus being the Son of God or Him being God come in the flesh or the only uh, we had this, like the redemption for the whole world. Those are the types of things that tended to get dropped and, and, and are dropped from versions that you, that you might hear on the, on the radio. Who listens to the radio anymore? I don't know. Through Spotify or, or iTunes Match. The idea that, that the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is one who is divisive um, and who the Bible testifies certain things that are too hard for some to believe. That is, that is testified to here by Simeon when he's speaking uh, to Joseph and Mary. He tells us that, that a sword will pierce through your own soul by the giving of this child so that the thoughts uh, from many hearts may be revealed. And that is, if you walk with Christ at all, and, and have for a time, you know that that is absolutely true, that he and his word does pierce your soul. He does reveal your heart truly. Who he is, the nature of the salvation, 
what it says about us and our fallen and our fallen state, and it does testify, uh, or, or it, it, it does prove true that our hearts are revealed. Well, once again, as we wrap up our reflections on the incarnation during this season, I think the question set before us by this by this story, and that is always before us, is is how will we receive? the Christ who has been given to us. I mean, God has given Christ to the world, and we have here a beautiful and wonderful demonstration of two who receive him in great joy and who receive him, and he transforms their life so much that they consider everything that they've lit or everything that they've dealt with um, as nothing compared to the peace and to the rest that he, that he brings. And that is a challenge for, for us today as Christians. Can we treasure Christ, the person of Christ, as God's gift to us? Can we treasure him as a gift uh, in our life? And can we value him so highly, so much, that no matter what turmoil and disappointment and regret you face in your life, can you honestly admit and say that you will depart from this life in peace simply um, for the sake of embracing and seeing and receiving Christ as your Savior? That's a tough thing to consider because many of us wish so badly that things had been better. Um, and frankly, some of us cling to the good things that have happened to us so tightly. But can we both praise God through the bad and count the good as rubbish compared to the surpassing glory of knowing God's Son and being known by Him? Well, may God, through this Christmas season, through the new year, uh, and through every day of our lives, give us the strength and the faith uh, and the mercy to make that be so in all of our lives. Let's pray.